Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. I hope everyone is having a great summer. And as we close out the month, I wanted to remind you that if you're in need of more military murder content, you can join my Patreon or Apple Premium subscription for more exclusive content. And if you sign up today, for as little as $5, you can listen to over 30 full-length episodes immediately. And the great thing is that you can cancel anytime. All right, on with the show. Today's case is a listener-suggested case, or should I say listeners. It's the case of a man who was a serial rapist and murderer before joining the Air Force. Then, after he joined, he continued to terrorize women in his new community. The thing is that he tried being a peeping Tom in the dorms, but got caught and was reprimanded. Ugh, this case will give you the creeps. Warning, this case involves a lot of discussion of rape. Listener discretion is advised. Join me today as I tell you the story of the airman that terrorized Philly and then terrorized Fort Collins before he was finally stopped. This is the story of Troy Graves. Now, let's dig in. Shannon Schieber was a 23-year-old grad student at the University of Pennsylvania when our story took place in 1998. Shannon was living alone in an apartment in Center City, Philadelphia. Before I continue, let me tell you a little bit about Shannon. According to her mom, she was a smart little cookie. At 18 months old, she not only knew the alphabet, but she could recite it backwards. Her smarts followed her through to college when she graduated from undergrad with not one, not two, but three degrees, and she finished it in only three years. Shannon had degrees in mathematics, economics, and philosophy. After she graduated from undergrad with an impressive record, she went to New York City and worked for a finance company but she soon felt a calling to return to school to obtain a PhD. Shannon was accepted into the prestigious Wharton School of Business at Penn, and she was thrilled to attend the school. Shannon was fearless. It should be noted that back in the late 90s, the school was predominantly male, but Shannon was making waves. To prepare for Penn, Shannon and her dad, Sylvester, visited the school campus, and while there, they looked into housing in Philadelphia. Shannon wanted to live in a safe neighborhood, considering she was a single woman living alone. She found a nice second-floor apartment in the upscale Rittenhouse Square in Center City. Rittenhouse Square was known for having a low crime rate, so it was a perfect choice for Shannon. Shannon's parents were also happy that Shannon found a safe place to live. Little did they know that a predator would be lurking nearby. On May 7, 1998, Shannon was home studying for finals in her apartment. That night, she had planned on meeting up with her brother, Sean, to grab a bite to eat, and Sean was actually going to stay with her that night. Sean was 18 months younger than Shannon, and they were really close. Well, as the day went on, Shannon felt like she needed to continue studying. So she called Sean and canceled on dinner plans, instead telling him she would meet him for lunch the following day. 
After spending the rest of her night studying, Shannon, who was still alone in her apartment, was ready for bed and she began her night routine. Brush her teeth, wash her face, that type of stuff. Shannon was in her bedroom doing her thing. Little did she know she had left her window exposed and someone was watching her. As Shannon removed her robe, a man entered her bathroom, covered her mouth and placed her in a chokehold. Shannon begged the man not to hurt her, but he took her to her bed and turned her face down, placing a pillow over her face. The man then raped Shannon as she fought her attacker, scratching his face with her nails. The man covered Shannon's mouth to keep her quiet, and that's when Shannon bit the man's finger really hard. Just then, Shannon's neighbor, Parm Greeley, was in his apartment across the hall from Shannon watching TV with his girlfriend. Just after midnight, Parm and his girl heard what they thought might be a scuffle, like loud footsteps and sounds of things like falling over. But Parm also thought he heard Shannon telling someone to get away from me. Parm didn't know Shannon very well, so he thought maybe it was an argument between Shannon and a boyfriend or something like that. Shannon was telling the person to leave her alone. Parm's girlfriend, not wanting to be nosy, felt the noise was coming from the street, not an apartment. Eventually, the girlfriend went to sleep and Parm continued watching TV. Meanwhile, the struggle continued inside Shannon's apartment. And then Parm heard Shannon screaming for help. And this time, he definitely heard the sounds of a struggle coming from Shannon's apartment. As he listened attentively, the next sound really unnerved Parm. It was as if Shannon's cries for help were suddenly cut off, like the air was choked off. Parm ran into the hallway and knocked on Shannon's door. He yelled, asking Shannon if she was okay. But it was eerily quiet. Parm jiggled the door handle, but it was locked. As he stood there, he wondered if he was just imagining the whole thing. Parm ran back into his apartment, shook his girlfriend awake, and told her to call 911. Then he ran back to Shannon's door, where he continued to bang on her door and ask if she needed help. Parm ran back to his place, where he realized his girlfriend was useless and hadn't called 911. So he decided to call himself. While Parm was dialing 911, inside Shannon's apartment, the struggle for Shannon's life continued. When the intruder heard Parm at Shannon's door, he tightened his grip around Shannon's neck and he whispered for her to calm down. But Shannon didn't stop fighting, including drawing blood on the man's finger as she bit down. Once Shannon stopped fighting, the man released his grip on Shannon's neck and slipped out the patio door, the same door that he had used to gain entry into her home. The perpetrator's finger was bleeding when he left, but he didn't notice the smear of blood he left behind. Parm called 911 at 2.04 a.m. When the dispatcher asked what the emergency was, he told her, quote, my next door neighbor, I just heard her yelling for help. I knocked on the door and I just heard like, like a choking type sound. Dispatch responded, quote, we'll have someone out as soon as possible, end quote. When he hung up with 911, he ran down to the first floor where he chatted with Amy Reed a first-floor neighbor who said she also heard some sort of commotion upstairs. Parm ran back upstairs and pounded on Shannon's door for a third time. He yelled through the door, Shannon, Shannon, are you okay? I called the police. He contemplated breaking down the door, but what if an attacker was actually in there? What would he do then? Better he wait for the cops. And he wouldn't have to wait long because they soon arrived within 5 to 10 minutes of the 911 call. Two police officers arrived at the apartment complex. They were in separate patrol cars when the call came in. Parm and Amy were outside waiting for them, and Parm gave them a quick rundown of what he thought he heard. They all went up to Shannon's door together, and the two cops asked Amy and Parm to step back. They pounded on Shannon's door with their nightsticks. A neighbor from the third floor came down when he heard the cops pounding on Shannon's door. 
So now there were five people clustered outside of Shannon's door, but still no response from inside. If even a third floor neighbor heard the cops pounding on the door, certainly whoever was inside Shannon's apartment would have heard them and come to the door at this point. The cops now had to make a decision. Do we bust into the apartment or not? But they could only bust down the door if there was an emergency. So they grilled Parm. What did you actually hear? And now that Parm was on the spot, he began to second guess what he heard. I mean, there were dozens of other neighbors and Parm was the only one who seemed concerned about what he heard. But he was also the closest neighbor. The cops stared at Parm and they were like, we can bust down the door if you believe there is a true emergency. At which point Parm was like, well, when you put it that way, maybe it was just nothing. And with that, the cops had no legal authority to break into Shannon's apartment. The cops knocked again. They went outside and they shone their flashlights onto Shannon's sliding glass door on her patio. And not seeing any signs of a forced entry or foul play, the cops left. They were only there for five minutes. Before pulling out of the area, the cops called the response in as unfounded. Parm was probably embarrassed about the entire ordeal until the following afternoon when he heard someone knocking on Shannon's door. When Parm poked his head out to see who it was, it was Sean, Shannon's brother. Sean told Parm he was there to meet up with his sister for lunch, but he was concerned because she was a no-show and now she wasn't answering her door. Sean asked Parm if he had seen Shannon, and that's when Parm told Sean about the 2 a.m. events with 911. Both Sean and Parm grew concerned, and they decided to break down the door themselves. And when they did, they were horrified. Shannon was lying face down on the bed. She was completely nude, and it was clear to them that she was dead. Sean took about two steps inside the apartment and collapsed at the sight of his sister. Parm ran back across the hall to his place and called 911 again. It had been 12 hours since he called the night before. This time, he told dispatch, quote, there's a dead person in the apartment next door. I called last night. I heard what I thought was yelling, end quote. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. 
That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code Mama Margo. That's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. When the police arrived the second time, they were met with the grisly scene. It appeared as though Shannon had been raped and strangled to death, but the scene was bloody too. It was evident Shannon had fought like hell to stay alive. There was blood spatter on the walls and a spot soaked into the sheets. They also found semen on the bedspread and a spot of blood on the railing out on the balcony. Crime scene technicians gathered evidence, took photographs, and cataloged what they found, including the blood and semen stains. Meanwhile, Shannon's parents, Syl and Vicky, received a call with the worst news a parent could ever receive. Their beautiful daughter was dead. The police started their investigation by interviewing everyone that knew Shannon. At that point, everyone was a suspect, but there were a couple of people that police narrowed their search onto right away. The first was a man named Yuval Barrer. Yuval was a fellow graduate student at Wharton, and he had his eyes set on Shannon. Months before her murder, Shannon invited Yubar to her house for Thanksgiving, and everyone had a lovely time. But Shannon was not interested in Yubar romantically. She had firmly put him in the friend zone. But Yuval wanted more, and he began to stalk Shannon, showing up at places he knew she'd be. But not just that, Yuval had threatened to kill Shannon. And Shannon was scared, so much so that she reported Yuval to the campus police. She claimed that not only had Yuval been stalking her, but the last time they spoke, he told her, quote, if you aren't careful, the next funeral you'll attend will be your own, end quote. I mean, what the hell? Clearly he had issues and is mentally unstable, but do these stalkers really think their victim is going to just magically wake up one morning and be like, yep, that's the person I want to spend the rest of my life with? I mean, come on. So anyway, of course, Yuval was suspect numero uno. Philadelphia police detectives brought Yuval in for questioning where he declared his innocence. Police questioned him for hours, but he was so adamant that it wasn't him that he voluntarily gave a DNA sample for comparison to the DNA sample left at Shannon's apartment. While the police waited for the DNA analysis, Philly PD detectives continued to question other suspects. And suspect numero dos was Aaron Flickman, another one of Shannon's classmates. Aaron and Shannon had gotten into a verbal altercation while out for drinks just a few days before her murder. And just like Yuval, Aaron had threatened Shannon. Police interrogated him, and just like Yuval, Aaron said he was innocent. Detectives asked Aaron for a DNA sample, and he willingly provided them with one. And now the detectives had two suspect DNA samples. They sent them off for testing, and it was a waiting game. 18 days later, the results were in. Negative. Neither Yuval nor Aaron's DNA was found at the crime scene. And now the detectives were back at square one, and it had already been nearly three weeks. When Vicky and Syl Schieber learned that Parm had called police after hearing their daughter scream and the cops had done nothing, they were furious. They firmly believed that the man who killed their daughter was likely inside her apartment as two Philly police officers sat outside her door and did nothing. With all of their grief, they wanted accountability. But the assistant district attorney and the Philly chief of police disagreed with the Shebers and believed that the two patrolmen did exactly what they were supposed to do that night. They banged on the door, they went outside and checked the balcony, and neither door looked like they had been broken into. 
And to top it off, their ear witness couldn't be 100% certain about what he had heard. There was no justified reason for them to break down the door at that point. The officers followed procedure. And with that, the officers did not get in trouble. The investigation was continuing despite the disparity between the Shebers and the Philadelphia police. The next lead they chased down was from a friend of Shannon's who told investigators that a couple days before the murder, Shannon had told her friend that she had been followed when she was walking home from the movies. With this new lead, detectives found a doorman who remembered a young woman being followed by a man, but they didn't give further details. At this point, detectives realized that they needed to open their scope of perpetrators. Maybe the attacker was unknown to Shannon. Maybe Shannon's murder was unplanned. This could be a rape turned felony murder. They widened the net and started looking into rapes in the center city area, starting with the night Shannon was killed and working backwards. They looked to match the DNA from the murder scene to other unsolved rapes that had occurred. The lab compared the DNA taken from the scene to 63 other rapes in the area, but nothing was a match. For months, the detectives were investigating the case, searching unsolved rape cases in the area, and they were like, wait a minute, what if the suspect committed other crimes not involving rapes or murder? What about burglaries? Bingo. There it was. Nine months into the investigation of Shannon's brutal murder and the perpetrator in two other cases matched the suspect in Shannon's case. The other two cases, however, had been downgraded from sexual assaults to burglary and something called investigation of premise, which is why the investigators hadn't gotten a match initially when investigators were only looking at sexual assaults. Those two assaults took place just blocks from Shannon's apartment and within days of each other in August of 1997, the year before Shannon's murder. Both victims in those cases described their attacker as a tall, thin, light-skinned African-American man. Then, two more cases matched, one from June 1997 and the other a month later in July. These two additional cases were also not classified as sexual assaults. But DNA doesn't lie. The Philly PD now had five rapes, including Shannon's, carried out by the same perpetrator. So before I go any further, you might be wondering, what the hell? Why would a sexual assault be downgraded, right? These were horrible crimes where women were attacked and brutalized. I'm not going to gloss over the fact that the Philadelphia Police Department had been intentionally reclassifying sexual assaults as misdemeanors. All of these crimes happened in the middle of the night. There was no forced entry and no weapons were used. So here's the skinny. The Philly police were intentionally hiding violent crimes to make the city's arrest rates look better than they actually were. There was a serial rapist on the loose in Center City. Four rapes took place in the year prior to Shannon's death, but no one, absolutely no one was warned because four of the attacks were swept under the rug. Shannon's dad, Sill, told People Investigates that if Shannon had known there was a serial rapist operating in Rittenhouse Square, she would still be alive today because she would have most likely taken precautions. I can't even imagine how that felt for Shannon's family and for the survivors of the other attacks. If the first one had not been downgraded to a misdemeanor, could all of the attacks have been prevented? I mean, we'll never know, but it goes much, much deeper than that. 
You see, the Philadelphia Inquirer released a multiple part investigative report looking into the Philadelphia Police Department for a practice known as, quote, going down with crime, end quote. Now, going down with crime is when the DA downgrades major offenses to minor ones to boost arrest numbers and make the city look like it is safe. When this happens, the police commissioners look good and people keep their jobs. Well, the FBI put together an annual report that tallied crimes grouped into a category known as Part 1, which are major crimes. When police departments practiced going down with crime, the numbers were skewed. Here's how bad it got in Philly. Seven months before Shannon's death, the city of Philadelphia hired a new police commissioner, a veteran New York City cop named John Timoni. When the FBI asked for Philly's crime data numbers for the first six months of 1998, Timoni was like, nah, we're going to hold off on that for a minute. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that he had no faith in his own department's stats. Timoni also initiated an internal audit that resulted in 681 rape cases and 1,141 sexual assault cases being reopened and reinvestigated, arresting 62 men in connection with the reopened cases. As a result, he canned two district captains and initiated new reporting procedures so when Philly police responded to a 911 call, there would be a paper trail, even when the call comes back as unfounded like it did in Shannon's case. Not surprisingly, Philly wasn't looking so good. And of course, when an entire major city screws up, people in high places get involved. In this case, the U.S. Attorney General, then Janet Reno, ordered a review of how cases were categorized in Philly. She wanted to know how the crime stats were being skewed. An internal audit estimated that of the 95,000 major crimes reported, murder, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, burglary, larceny, and auto theft, 1 in 10 were downgraded. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's not chump numbers. That's about 9,500 crimes. Prior to Commissioner Timoni running the show, the Special Victims Unit, yes, that's really what it's called, had been filing, I mean, <clears throat> dumping, cases under a code 2701, which is an investigation of person. Now, bear with me as I break this down. Cases labeled as 2701 were throwaway cases. If a case was labeled 2701, it got zero investigative effort, meaning the case file sat in a closet somewhere. You might be wondering, why would an SVU case be labeled as a throwaway case? Well, the internal auditors and the FBI wondered the same exact thing, and they put a stop to that real quick at the end of 1997. But SVU wasn't happy they got busted. So now, instead of using code 2701, they began to use code 2625, which was an old code system used in the 1970s for runaways, aka more cases that never got looked into. So now it was early 1998 and boom, 30 new cases were coded as 2625, a code that hadn't been used in decades. And sadly, the majority of cases that ended up under 2625 were, you guessed it, sexual assaults where the victim was either unconscious, drugged or drunk at the time of the attack. And some of the 2625s involved cases where the women didn't want to press charges. Okay, back to the investigation into Shannon's murder and the DNA that was obtained at the crime scene. The five city center rape cases matched one perpetrator, but there was no name in the criminal system that matched that DNA. 
So what's the over under that the perpetrator in this case is a veteran or will join the military? 100%, especially if I'm covering it on this podcast. So here we go. The victims shared the same victimology. They were young white women living alone in the center city area. All five attacks happened within a three block radius. The Philly PD detectives went back to the four victims whose kids were linked to this one offender. There had been a composite drawing done, but the victim who helped police develop the composite didn't really get a good look at her attacker. The drawing was pretty generic and showed a square jawed man with straight hair parted down the middle. Based on other victim statements, the police believed that the perpetrator was actually African-American. Police wanted to start over trying to identify the perp, so they started with the first victim. At first, she was hesitant, but after learning about Shannon's murder and the DNA match, she was willing to help. I can't say I blame her for hesitating because the entire Philly Police Department had failed her. You see, the sexual assault committed against her was a felony crime, but it had been downgraded to a misdemeanor and according to her, swept under the rug because remember, it was unsolved. Not just that, her case was completely mishandled. You see, the scene was never even processed. Wait, what? The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that a review of the investigation uncovered a complete mishandling of victim one's case. Not only was her case downgraded under code 2701, but they never even gathered physical evidence. That's worth repeating. The police never even gathered the physical evidence. So you're probably really confused at this point, right? Because didn't I just say there was a DNA evidence match? Okay, hold your butt. The only evidence that was collected for victim one was done by the victim herself. You see, she picked up the perp's pubic hairs off her sheets and taped them to a piece of notebook paper where she journaled her attack. Can we just stop here for a minute and revel at the freaking fortitude of this woman? Not only was that incredibly brave of her to do after being sexually assaulted, but it showed extraordinary foresight too. Well, she didn't stop there. Victim one then turned the evidence into the police where it gathered dust for 28 months, which was when they finally got around to testing the DNA on the cases that were categorized other than rape. The physical evidence that the victim collected was what linked her case to the other rapes. So you might see why this poor lady was hesitant when the police showed up at her doorstep a year or so later. But she did let them in and detectives had brought along a sketch artist to create an updated composite. They handed the victim a book filled with pictures of black male suspects. They wanted her to flip through it and see if she could pick out features from their faces that they could build the sketch from. After flipping through a few pages, the victim closed the book and said her attacker was not black. She said he was maybe Middle Eastern, definitely not white, but not black either. With her recollection, a new sketch was made to replace the generic composite. Shorter hair, same square jaw, same thin build. Detectives also built a profile of the perpetrator's M.O. based off of their interviews with the remaining three victims. The attacker was sneaking into these women's homes in the middle of the night through a window or door. He got into victim one's apartment by climbing on a dumpster and then sneaking himself through a gap in the burglar bars on her second floor apartment. This victim was a 27-year-old artist. Victim two was a 25-year-old office worker. He got into her apartment and he attacked her while she slept. He stripped her clothes off and choked her until she was unconscious before raping her. Victim three was 24 years old. 
the perp was able to get into her first floor apartment by squeezing through the burglar bars like he did with victim one. But the gap was only seven inches wide. He wrapped the belt around her neck and covered her face with a pillow during the attack. Victim four was a woman in her early 20s who had fallen asleep watching TV. The perp crept in while she was sleeping. He punched her into submission and threatened to kill her if she didn't stop screaming. Shannon Sheeper was victim five. Police surmise that the perp got in through her sliding glass door by climbing onto her second floor balcony and letting himself in. We know that Shannon fought back and got the attention of some neighbors. This could be likely why the perpetrator strangled Shannon to death. The survivors told similar stories. The rapist would blitz attack them by immediately throwing himself onto their backs and holding them down on their beds before he blindfolded and tied them up. In all the cases, after he subdued the women, the perp would either rape the women or force them to perform oral sex on him. Here's where it gets even creepier, if I can even say that. Once the women were subdued and acquiesced, the perpetrator would act like he was their romantic partner. He'd say how pretty they were and attempt to romance them. He'd get so comfortable with these poor women that he told a couple of them about his unhappy childhood and how he grew up in a mixed race household. He confessed that his father was African-American and his mother was Italian. Bingo! Now it made sense to detectives that the first victim described him as not black, but not white either. Their perpetrator was mixed race, so he would qualify as a darker skinned white man or a lighter skinned black man. With this new information, the composite sketch was updated once again and distributed throughout Philadelphia. As people became aware of the serial rapes that were happening in their quiet corner of the city, a panic ensued. Locks and home protection devices were flying off the shelves, mace, window bars, and pins, they were all in short supply. People were much more diligent about making sure they locked their doors and windows. Women stopped going anywhere alone. They made sure they traveled in pairs or in groups. And if they had to travel alone, they took taxis instead of walking. Doesn't this kind of sound like the Gainesville Ripper when Danny Rowling was on his murder spree? Center City was another college town like Gainesville and people were doing everything they could to stay safe. The police department created flyers with the composite and posted them all over Center City, saturating Rittenhouse Square, which is a historic park in the Center City area. Even though the composite had been updated, there were no distinguishing features. There were no scars, no birthmarks, nothing. Any man fitting the loose description was instantly a suspect. The press gave the rapist a moniker, calling him the Center City Rapist. A task force was formed within the Philly PD and 100 suspects were questioned, screened, and fingerprinted. Of those, 41 were tested for a DNA match. Unfortunately, out of all these suspects, not one matched the evidence left behind at the five scenes. A reward of $35,000 was posted and police went out into the community undercover to try to find the rapist, specifically in Rittenhouse Square. They were doing everything they could to keep the community safe and to track down this prolific criminal. They even deployed undercover female officers to try to act as decoys and draw the rapist in. Despite these measures, in August of 1999, the Center City Rapist struck again. This time, he took the screws out of the bars covering a woman's apartment window and slid into her home. He tied her up, blindfolded her, and forced her to perform oral sex on him. Then he disappeared into the night. 
This was the sixth attack and the first since Shannon's murder. It was the end of the summer. Notably, the rapes in Center City had been occurring during the warmer months of the summer when people were more likely to leave a window or door open for ventilation. The August attack would be his last attack in Center City anyway. Shannon's murder and the five other rape cases went cold. Police told the Sheepers that it might be because the perpetrator was either dead or maybe in prison. They had no solid leads left to chase and no new clues to bring them closer to finding out who this monster was. Until a Philly PD employee kept her ear to the ground and heard some things about attacks happening halfway across the country in Colorado. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. In 2001, the Fort Collins, Colorado Police Department sent the Philly PD an APB or All Points Bulletin. The dispatcher who received the APB read it and then reread it because she was struck by the eerie similarities between the crimes listed in the APB and the series of rapes that had occurred in Center City a few years back. This APB indicated that a man had been breaking into women's apartments in the Fort Collins area in the middle of the night. He was either raping them or forcing them to perform oral sex, and he was sweet-talking them, like he was being romantic with them. Well, the dispatcher couldn't shake the feeling that maybe the Center City rapist had relocated to Fort Collins. Fort Collins is home to Colorado State University, and in 2001, it had a population of 125,000 people. It's located one hour north of Denver and one hour south of the Wyoming border. While Fort Collins sounds like a military base because of the fort in the name, there is no active duty military base in the town. In fact, the nearest active duty military base is just over the border in Wyoming. It's a small Air Force base by the name of Effie Warren. The first victim in Fort Collins was a 20-year-old who was assaulted in her apartment. Victim 2 was 20, victim 3 was 26, victim 4 was 23, victim 5 was 20, victim 6 and 7 were 21 and 22, and they were roommates. All the victims were attacked in their apartments. The attacks stopped after the last two assaults in August, but on April 12, 2002, a 19-year-old was attacked, but she fought and the attacker ran away. 
One of the Fort Collins victims, Kristen Marshall, told her story on an episode of People Investigates. She is named in the interview, otherwise I wouldn't normally publish a victim's name. One weekend, Kristen's husband, who was terminally ill with cancer, had taken their son on a father-son camping trip to make some memories. Home by herself, Kristen was surprised from behind in a blitz attack and forced onto the floor. Her mind raced with the knowledge that her husband was going to die of cancer. She didn't want to leave her son an orphan by doing anything to anger the perpetrator and die at his hands. In order to survive, Kristen acquiesced to the attacker's demands. Once she did, she said his demeanor instantly changed. He went from being violent to being tender. Kristen described it as how a boyfriend or husband would be with their partner. According to Kristen, the attack became even more disturbing once he switched to this persona. She said he was almost kind in how he was touching her and talking to her. Ooh, ugh, I'm so creeped out by this guy. After the attack, he left Kristen tied to the bed, face down and naked. She managed to get herself free and call 911. The police responded and shockingly told her that she was the third victim of rape in Fort Collins. In the second Fort Collins attack, the perp seemed to be getting smarter about not leaving behind DNA. During this attack, he ejaculated into either a cup or a rag and took it with him. He also wiped the victim down with a damp wash rag. Again, with the Gainesville Ripper vibes here. The victims in Fort Collins described their attack as blitz style, either when they weren't expecting it or as they were sleeping. Their attacker tied them up and blindfolded them. They all described the perp as either a darker skinned white male or a light skinned black male. Same creepy pillow talk with the victims and he was even giving them tips on how to stay safe and prevent future attacks. A few weeks later, the rapist struck again. Same MO, same description of the perp. By the end of the summer, a fifth attack happened. Again, same MO, same description. But this time, the rapist made a huge mistake. He had been getting smarter about trying to conceal his DNA, but this time he left behind more than just DNA. He left behind a baseball cap. He also left witnesses. During one of the attacks, a neighbor heard a woman scream, then saw a man leaving the scene in a Honda. She thought the color of the car was light blue. Hang on to that detail for a second. After the Philly dispatcher got the heebie-jeebies, she contacted the powers that be. The Philadelphia PD then got in contact with the Fort Collins PD, and after they got to chatting, Philly PD was like, listen, we got DNA evidence. We will send you the file. So they sent everything they had on the Center City Rapist, DNA, composite sketches, and details of the crimes. After a couple of days, the DNA from some of the Fort Collins cases came back, and when they compared it to the Center City Rapist, it was a match. The Center City Rapist was one in the same as the Fort Collins Rapist. Fort Collins PD made up a flyer with a composite sketch and posted it all over town. In the same way as Center City, the city of Fort Collins was afraid. People were being diligent and taking extra precautions with their safety. And tips started rolling into the Fort Collins Police Department. Along with tips from the public, the police received a letter in the mail from the perpetrator. It was postmarked from Denver, which remember was an hour south of Fort Collins. The police were sure this was an attempt by the perp to throw them off. but they were pretty sure that the rapist actually lived in Fort Collins. 
The letter was meant to taunt the police and throw them off his trail. It was typed and written in all lowercase without any punctuation. It was the world's longest run-on sentence, and it was filled with weird rambling about not wanting to get caught and not liking cold weather. In order to ensure the cops didn't think he was an imposter, he graphically described each of the Fort Collins assaults. He also basically talked about how it's better to have a dog than a cat because when he knew a dog was present, he turned around. Meanwhile, most of his victims had, in his words, useless cats. The letter ended with the writer stating that he was positive Shannon Sheber was alive when he left her apartment. After the last attack in Fort Collins at the end of the summer in 2001, the attacks thankfully stopped, except for that failed attempt in 2002. Just like in Philly, when the weather turned cooler, the attacks stopped. Months went by with no new attacks with the connected M.O. Detectives in both cities were hard at work, but a lieutenant named Ed Monahan in the Major Crimes Division in Philly was about to leverage his knowledge of investigating identity theft to help both cities find their perpetrator. Ed Monahan created a database of men's names that had lived in both Philly and Fort Collins using driver's license reports credit card information, and publicly available records. The list started out with 319 names, but after removing anyone who didn't live within the precise zip codes where the attacks occurred, the list whittled down to 83 names. Lieutenant Monahan then cross-referenced the dates of the attacks and shaved off another 43 names. The list was then given to investigators who went through the remaining 40 names ruling out anyone with an alibi or people who were incarcerated at the time of the attacks or who gave DNA samples that didn't match or didn't match the physical description of the attacker. The list narrowed down farther and farther. One name on the list, number 34, was that of a 29-year-old man named Troy Graves. In the summer of 2001, a tip came into the Fort Collins PD from a woman who said the composite sketch on the flyer looked like one of her neighbors. She said her neighbor drove a blue Honda and she was so helpful that she even gave them the license plate number. The detective thanked the woman for the information and ran the plate. And when it came back, they got a name, Troy Graves, and he was conveniently number 34 on their list of 40 people who lived in Center City during their attacks lived in Fort Collins during those attacks, was tall, and he looked a lot like their composite sketch, but so did the other men on the list. Detectives went down to visit Troy Graves at his house, but he was never home. They still had more men to visit, so Troy Graves just got kind of lost in the sauce. In the spring of 2002, when the weather started warming up, Fort Collins PD put out a reminder to the community that they had not yet caught the elusive rapist. And then, after months of peace and quiet, there was another attack. So a man grabbed a woman from behind, shoved her to the floor, and started dragging her to the bedroom. She grabbed a door handle in the hall, breaking free from his grasp, then screamed her head off. The man then ran off into the night. This was that failed attempt I talked about earlier. Meanwhile, the police in Philly were looking into this Troy Gray's person. They located a former girlfriend who told them that he had joined the military in October of 1999 and moved to Fort Collins, Colorado. 
The detective who spoke to Graves' ex-girlfriend had a friend who worked in the records department for the Air Force who confirmed that Troy Graves was indeed a senior airman or an E-4 on active duty and was stationed at F.E. Warren Air Force Base. He worked in the missile fields in maintenance. Because Shannon Sheber had fought so hard against her attacker, they had the man's DNA and his blood type, A positive. The detective asked her Air Force contact what Graves' blood type was. No small coincidence, it was also A positive. The detective immediately called Fort Collins PD and told them about her findings. I'm really loving this cross-country collaboration to bring this perpetrator down. Fort Collins then dispatched a detective to Graves' apartment immediately, but again, no one was home. So he left his business card. As they looked into Troy Graves, they discovered that he had been married for about a year to 26-year-old Amy Wade. Amy was the one who found the detective's business card and called him back. She told him that her husband was at work at Effie Warren and had a dental appointment that afternoon at 3 p.m., but she would let him know that the police wanted to talk to him. Troy Graves called the detective back later that afternoon and agreed to come in for an interview. While they were waiting for him to come in, they found out a little more about Troy Graves from the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, a.k.a. OSI. You see, OSI had investigated Graves after a female airman filed a complaint about Graves trying to sneak into her dorm room the previous spring. He had been reprimanded for this offense. On the People Magazine Investigates episode that I watched, they show footage of Troy and Amy coming into the police department together at about 6.30 p.m. He was still in his BDUs, because remember, this is, uh, what, 2002? And he was coming straight from his dental appointment at Effie Warren. The police separated the couple, taking Amy to one interrogation room and bringing Troy to another. As Amy sat down with the detective, she stated, quote, there was something different about him. He seemed so kind and gentle, not sexually aggressive at all, end quote. She began to tell the detective that when Troy had insomnia, he would go out for a smoke and sometimes he would take a walk. After he came back, sometimes he would have scratches on himself. She said that he did this for a month or two. Amy told the detective that she honestly thought that he knew someone in Fort Collins and was maybe having an affair. Detectives showed Amy the baseball cap that had been left behind at one of the crime scenes, and she confirmed that Troy owned a ball cap just like that one, but she hadn't seen it in a few months. At one point during the interview, she told the detectives that, quote, I feel like I'm stabbing him in the back, end quote. In the other interrogation room, Troy was proclaiming his innocence, saying he doesn't know anything about the rapes in Fort Collins. The detective asked Troy, quote, do you know anyone who you think would be responsible for these cases? End quote. Troy answered, no. His entire demeanor during the interview was kind of cocky. He was sitting with his chin on his fist and his squadron hat hanging on his knee. Kind of reminds me of Colonel Russell Williams, the Canadian serial killer who was also a rapist. They asked him if he had any prior arrest or if he had any run-ins with police or if he had ever been under any kind of suspicion before for any crimes. Troy Graves answered no to every single question. The next question was pretty pointed. The detective asked, quote, have you ever been accused or arrested for window peeping or any other type of sex crime, end quote. And with a casual shake of his head, Troy again answered no. The detective asked, do you have any criminal history? No. Then the detective asked, have you ever gotten into any trouble while you've been in the Air Force? 
This time, Troy hesitated, kind of rolled his head up like he was really thinking about it. And he answered with, uh, I got a suspended license. The cop facing him in the interrogation room really had a master poker face because they already knew that Troy had been reprimanded for trying to get into a female airman's dorm room. The detective asked him point blank, are you responsible for these cases? Meaning the Fort Collins cases. Troy responded quizzically, what do you mean? Seriously, how do cops do it? The cop pointed to his notes and asked him if he was responsible for the cases that he was talking about. Oh, now Troy got it. He answered no. The Fort Collins PD really wanted Troy to confess, but he wasn't making it easy on them. They asked him for his fingerprints and a DNA sample, but Troy wasn't sure about that. He said he wanted to think about it first. Well, Troy wasn't going to have to think about it for too long because while the detective was questioning him, a judge was signing a warrant to get his fingerprints and DNA. Once they presented Troy with the warrant, he gave them the samples they needed. He remained in police custody while the department's fingerprint analyst got to work comparing his prints to prints that were taken from a second floor balcony during the August 5th attack. A little before midnight and two hours after she had gathered his prints, the expert came back with her analysis. It was a perfect match. They had their man. Troy Graves was immediately placed under arrest and held on a $1 million bond. Less than 24 hours later, DNA tests confirmed that Troy Graves was the city center rapist and the attacker in the Fort Collins stalking and rape cases. Computer forensics tied the letter sent to the Fort Collins PD department to a computer used by Troy Graves. One of the reports I read indicated that the computer may have been one that was on Effie Warren. Once Troy Graves knew the gig was up, they had fingerprints, DNA. He confessed to it all. The attacks in Center City, Shannon Cheever's murder, and the rapes in Fort Collins. He even confessed to sending the weird type letter that he said was an attempt to throw the police off his trail. Troy Graves was facing a total of 27 charges against him in Fort Collins alone. In exchange for a sentence of life without the possibility of parole, Troy pled guilty to all charges. At his sentencing hearing, his victims lined up to provide their impact statements. The fourth victim spoke. She said that she slept with her back against her bedroom door so it couldn't be opened and she suffered from severe insomnia turning to alcohol to try to help her sleep. She looked at Graves and told her attacker, quote, For 370 days now, I've had an insomnia problem. I slept on my sister's floor for six months after you attacked me. I couldn't stay alone in my apartment for eight months, end quote. Kristen Marshall, the brave survivor who willed herself to live through her attack for her son, also spoke. She told the court, quote, I begged the defendant. I told him I had a son, a little boy whose father was dying of cancer, end quote. She looked Troy Graves right in the eyes and told him that her life was going to go on. She would be happy and whole again, but he wouldn't. Damn straight. Good for you, Kristen. Once the cases in Fort Collins were closed, Troy was extradited to Philadelphia to face the courts for the rapes he committed there and for Shannon Sheber's murder. The district attorney's office told Syl and Vicky that the state would pursue the death penalty against him for their daughter's murder. But the Shebers did not believe in the death penalty and they did not support the court's decision. 
Vicky told People Magazine Investigates, quote, putting him to death never would have been any justice to me, end quote. The courts offered a plea agreement to Graves that satisfied the Sheber family. For his crimes in Pennsylvania, Troy Graves would receive a sentence of life plus 60 years. The charges included first-degree murder, attempted rape, aggravated assault, burglary, and attempted involuntary deviant sexual intercourse and rape. In the People Magazine Investigates interview, Sill told the reporter, quote, he is going to have many remaining days in his life where he will wake up regretting what he did, end quote. He went on to say, quote, he will have to live with this himself. During sentencing in Philadelphia, Troy Graves spoke to surviving victims and the Sheber family. He said, quote, to the city of Philadelphia and the victims and the families and the friends of the victims, I'm sorry. My deepest sympathy to the Sheber family for their loss. And I thank them for how they've been throughout this, end quote. With his voice cracking and choking on his sobs, he continued, quote, I wish I could uh, offer more than an apology today. I'm hoping my future actions will reflect my sincerity. I've cooperated with authorities fully and in some time in the future, I'll talk to profilers, which will hopefully help future investigations and maybe myself, end quote. He ended his statement saying, quote, I'm thinking of ways to try to make amends, end quote. You know, the thing with pathological liars is you never can tell if they are actually telling the truth because they have become so good at lying that I bet they believe the lies themselves. The court announced his sentence, life without the possibility of parole. Today, he is 51 years old and is now serving his sentence in the Colorado State Penitentiary in Canyon City, Colorado. After the horrible actions of the SVU and Major Crimes Division with downgrading and improperly coding cases, the Philadelphia PD completely changed their policy on how sexual assault cases were handled. It changed how victims are treated and how they are interviewed. They changed how evidence was handled. They changed everything for the better. At least that's what it says on paper. Survivor Kristen Marshall now works with victim advocates to ensure victims feel safe throughout the entire process. She told People Magazine that maybe this was why she was attacked. Syl and Vicki Schieber filed a $3.8 million civil lawsuit attempting to hold the city liable for Shannon's death and for her potential lost earnings. Their main contention being that the two officers that responded to Parm Greeley's 911 call didn't break down Shannon's door. Doing so, the Schiebers argued, would have saved her life. They made some shocking accusations in their lawsuit. First, they claimed that the Philadelphia Police Department were well aware of the rapist patterns long before he entered Shannon's apartment to rape and murder her. Sill felt very strongly that his daughter would have taken precautions and would have protected herself better if the public had been aware of the risk. They went on to say that besides the public, the Philadelphia Police Department failed to notify their B officers about the previous attacks and the rapist M.O including the officers who responded to Parm Greeley's 911 call. The family claimed that if the officers had known about the previous rapes that occurred blocks from Shannon's apartment, they would have been more likely to break down Shannon's door. The suit also contended that the rapist was on his way to becoming a strangler, which is how Shannon was killed. The police knew that the rapist had strangled his first two victims Yet, they still downgraded the cases and filed them as misdemeanors under Code 2701. 
The city's police commissioner, John Timoni, acknowledged the SVU had its fair share of problems, but insisted that the hunt for the rapist was never dropped. Part of this argument included producing a memo that was written at the time containing information about the rapes. The city insisted the memo was provided to the entire city. However, the former captain of the 9th District testified that no one ever briefed him on the patterns of the rapists, nor was his district provided a memo. The lawsuit also contained verbiage that when the two patrolmen were banging on Shannon's front door, they asked leading questions, making Parm Greeley doubt himself in thinking he didn't really hear Shannon call out. The officers disputed, arguing Parm's second-guessed himself, not because of them. The civil trial dragged on for several years, but ultimately the Shebers lost their suit to a jury verdict in 2004. Despite the civil side of matters, Syl and Vicki Sheber are still working the criminal side. They are working to abolish the death penalty in Pennsylvania. They feel that their daughter Shannon would have felt the same way. I have had a few people reach out to me and tell me that either they knew Troy or knew of him while they served, which is always so surreal to me. All right, everyone, that's all I have for this case. Please hit me up on social media if you want to connect. Instagram, Military Murder Podcast, or YouTube at Mama Margot. Shout out to Myrtle for doing the research and writing this full episode for me. My sources for today's episode include an episode of People Magazine Investigates, Articles in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Philadelphia Daily News, The Daily Record, Fort Collins, Coloradoan, The Times Tribune, Casper Star Tribune, The News Journal, Women's Law Project, and the Colorado Department of Corrections Inmate Finder. Military Murder was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and hire Patreon members. Executive producers include Falcon 13, Myrtle, Jen, Bob, Alicia, Nicole, and Tina. This month's newest associate producers are Sydney, Sherry, and Kitty. This month's newest assistant producers are Carrie, State, Steve, Janelle, Adrian, Cassidy, and Alyssa. The music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. I was working on her podcast. I don't want to.